Hello, my friend. Vinny Ng. TK Sweat. It has been 16 years, 17 years? A long time, my friend. And you have been quite busy in those intervening 16, 17 years. So have you. I mean, we all have. We, we've all found ways to be purposeful in our lives. Do you really think that Greg Bloom's been that purposeful, though? You know, it takes a lot of energy to be a thought leader. That's true. To be as contrarian as, as our friend Greg has been. Well, you, uh, it's, it's easy to be contrary when the reality you live in is not optimal. That's fair. And I, I, do, I, I, I do have to admit the energy that one must summon in order to hold on to the revolutionary ideals of one's youth, it is, it is pretty remarkable how he, is, he really is a true believer. I, uh, when, you give, when you have clarity of, 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 of how you want to live, um, it really puts into perspective um, where your guardrails are, you know? And he has some pretty idiosyncratic guardrails. <laughs> what, was that, what was that New Yorker article about reality endorsing Bernie Sanders? <laughs> it's, 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 it's in the time of great extremity that we realize that the people living on the margins are the ones who have always had the answers. So let's explore that a little bit. You are not only on the margins, but there is there's something to be said for being the 2019 Food and Wine Sommelier of the Year, which is not a <laughs> marginal position or award. And but you also do an incredible amount of work um, through mental health activism, where you are engaging with those exact populations on the margin. And so I'm curious how, you know, in your personal, professional and passion life, how you reconcile those and, and find, you know, synthesis in the thesis and the antithesis. Um, well, I think um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate and lucky, CK. I, I, I actually live a pretty, um, uh, benevolent and and moderately uh, comfortable life. So, um, um, but you know, when you're when we we all are touched in one way or another by situations that that um, are really uncomfortable or or are really uh, discomforting, and um, there there there's tremendous opportunity whenever we're confronted with uncertainty or the shock of an unplanned or, or unexpected um, incident in our lives to really uh, learn from and appreciate the grace that comes with uh, when things go wrong. I think that's absolutely um, correct. And, you know, finding that grace in experiences of trauma is not always easy, but it's, I think, undoubtedly the best way forward. I, I think it's the most um, kind way forward. You know, um, I think, I think, 
I, I think about this notion a lot, PK, that like in times of great distress and in times when uh, one feels like most of the world that we exist in is out of our control, um, the kindest choice that you can make is to really plug into and allow yourself to control the things that you have control over, um, uh, the things that you have agency with. So it could be as simple and and um, as taking a, a a deep belly breath. You know, uh, I I can't solve um, the issues of food insecurity in my community, but I can certainly decide and make a choice to take a moment to pause and take a big breath in and feel how powerful that can be, and then make a choice to release that breath in uh, an intentional manner. Um, and that sort of resets and reframes the whole body's response. Um, um, so I think in times where we're, we're experiencing new trauma, which brings up old trauma, um, the immediate flight or freeze or fight response is a trauma response. And everything feels urgent. And when everything feels urgent, uh, everything is overwhelming. And when everything is overwhelming, we become debilitated and we just stop. And you sort of pull the covers over your eyes and you say, I think I'm going to stay in bed for another hour because I, I, I don't have enough in me to, to, to people right now. <laughs> but it's also, you know, breath is purpose and taking a breath is finding purpose. and um, I think in this really, in this, this vast web of uncertainty and anxiety and, and physical distance, um, connecting with embodiment is a really important first step in realizing that we, there are things we can control um, and that we focus on that uh, while the larger things we can't control are spinning out. So let's break this down. Um, the first thing that you can control is taking that breath. Starting there, step one. And you know, if you are waking up with anxiety, if you are waking up with the heaviness of the moment weighing you down so you can't get out of bed, taking that breath and hopefully then finding the strength and the courage to get up and get out of bed. For you personally, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis here in the COVID-19 area, once you've taken that breath, once you've gotten out of bed, what are you, what are you actually doing? Like, take me step by step because, you know, I have here in front of me this incredible um, essay that was published recently in Food and Wine about empathy for restaurant workers and the different um, initiatives that you laid out there that you are hoping will not only be embodied now, but going forward. And so uh, how, how did you prepare to write for this and what are you doing now in follow-up? Sure, uh, I think um, we, we, I think we all, um, we all need and depend on each other now more than ever. Um, it, that's become really crystal clear, right? You sort of, we take, we have taken for granted um, the, the hundreds of helpers who make our daily lives possible. 
most 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 of them unseen and unmet. Um, and um, um, that becomes really crystal clear. You know, there's this like running joke on on Twitter right now where like the Twitter sphere likes to laugh and complain about how many dishes they wash on a daily basis now that they're sheltered in place. And you, you sort of reflect on and think about all the different places you move through in your daily normal existence and all the people who clean up and take care of spaces after you've come and gone. Um, the, the, and, um, and so, you know, having been in food service for over a decade and supporting different operations where um, you relied on so many different people to achieve an outcome, which is like a customer walking away with a cup of coffee and a pastry in a bag uh, and sort of looking at you uh, askance because they just, you just asked them to pay $8 for a coffee and a pastry. Um, and imagining the 16 people who made that $8 transaction possible, you know? Um, and so what, what came into really crystal clear focus for me um, is that the collateral damage of an immediate shelter in place order was that there were very specific sectors of our, of our daily lives that in, were immediately shut down. Um, <clears throat> you know, spaces of communal gathering where, um, you know, public health officials were really clear we, we can no longer gather in community in the ways that we normally would. And the immediate impact um, was felt right away in, in the food service industry. Um, you know, these are, these, are, these, are, these are businesses that already operate on such small margins um, and, and employed so many millions of people who uh, unfortunately did not have the luxury of continuing to work from home, right? So of a, course. A, a sector that sort of carried 11, 12, some would even say 20 million jobs throughout the country. In, in, a, in, a, in a cascade of falling dominoes, uh, those jobs just um, came to an immediate halt right away. You know, while, while, while other sort of businesses and, and sectors were able to um, pivot their business model and reassign duties for their employees so that they could um, uh, uh, work remotely. Um, the act of being in community is not something um, that I think any of us were prepared to do remotely. You know, um, that, that social media might have connected us in one way, but there are very, very fundamental ways in which we engage as human beings that create cohesion and, and weave the fabric of our daily existence that will never be replicated or duplicated in a remote fashion. Now referencing the, the shallowness of a Zoom call or like a Zoom happy hour, is that it, it, because I guess I've been a little bit lucky because I've been sheltering in place with my girlfriend, and that combined with all these. I mean, you're the 46th interview I've conducted in the last four weeks, and so that's 
kept me relatively busy and engaged. The daily calls to my parents, a little bit of the social media, the chat groups on WhatsApp in particular. And so I'm not feeling, just me personally, um, a, a huge lack of community right now. Like I, I, that's not, and maybe I'm super privileged in that regard, but I'm, I'm curious to know um, if you can unpack your idea of what community actually is. Sure. I, I think community for a lot of individuals, it's um, um, being in spaces where they feel safe and feel seen and feel protected. Um, community is feeling assured that um, your, your whole being is, is valued um, fundamentally for, for, for your, what I call your beingness and that your worth is not um, dependent on the job function that you play or the, the, the role that you have in society. It's not that, 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 um, and I guess, um, one, one parallel story is, you know, I went to, um, a corner store bodega the other day to do my grocery shopping. Um, and, and, and I was curious, um, on this corner of the mission district in San Francisco, um, there were a number of individuals that were sort of going storefront to storefront looking in the window. And what I realized, and this is something that I've experienced as a hiring manager in food service for many years, there are certain individuals who rely on being and going storefront to storefront looking for work. They, they, they can't click on LinkedIn and, and, and look at job listings um, or go on Glassdoor and, 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 plug themselves into an algorithm to find a job that a lot of job networks are in community, are in physical spaces. So if you imagine, you know, the shelter in place is really severely limited um, construction jobs. Um, and the number of day laborers that require sort of communing at certain known locations where, you know, my father, my father, came to America in 79 and for the first three to four years of his life, he would go to the neighborhood uh, hardware store and just stand out in front and wait to be picked up for uh, a day's work. And, and that, that sort of, um, that sort of uh, 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 community, that sort of uh, pathway for economic uh, sustainability um, has all but been obliterated. And so you have entire communities of immigrant workers, uh, low-wage low workers who, um, who want to work, who want to provide for their families, um, but their traditional pathways for that, which are very much physical and very much in physical spaces, have all but been eliminated. Um, and so my, my heart sort of is, it goes out to those communities that don't have access to the technologies that you and I have. I've had just as many Zoom calls and just as many um, FaceTimes and just as many house party calls. And, um, um, but, but truly, I, I guess, uh, you know, my mind really immediately runs to the, 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 the neighbor's and, and peers and cohorts who have always worked 
sort of in the shadows of our daily lives and how they are now receding deep into the shadows of our larger society. You know, our, our relief programs aren't capturing a lot of wage workers. Our, our, our relief programs definitely aren't catching our um, undocumented um, uh, workers who, though they pay taxes, probably won't see any relief until state and local leaders take leadership in acknowledging that they are just as important to, to, to catch what the safety net as, as small to medium to large sized businesses are. Um, and that really was sort of the driving impetus for, for, for sort of how I coalesced um, a really fundamental premise that I, I've come to really um, believe in right now is that in this moment of great uncertainty and great upheaval, if we catch the, these individuals that are closest to harm and furthest from, from conventional relief instruments, um, that we will end up stronger and more resilient and, and more likely to recover in a, in a humane and compassionate way. So like, and you know, I have a dear friend who taught me a really important phrase and she, you know, we move at the speed of trust and you sort of imagine the circles of trust that you, uh, that envelop you, they, they're sort of your armor. And, and the larger we expand the circle, the quicker we can recover from a moment that has really paralyzed so many communities and, and really, you know, in, in ways that I think most of us never imagined we would see as a, as a not only a national, but a global community. What's the work that needs to be done now in order to achieve this end where there, you know, will be a measure of not safety, not solace, but a measure of help for, for those who really are at the margins. I mean, what actually needs to happen right now? Well, immediately, we need to make sure that people are uh, fed and kept healthy. You know, immediately, we need, to, we need to ensure the dignity of every single human being, um, whether it's access to clean water or access to prepared meals. Uh, or access to clean clothing, or access to shelter, um, or access to um, um, testing. What we've already seen it in the disparity of who who's being tested right now, and who's being told that tests aren't available. Right. So, it, in terms of the food, I mean, you know, I, I it's easier for me to break off the food from the testing because I have no idea how the testing is being conducted or by whom or where that's something that is just so far outside my understanding of what's going on right now um, that I'm not sure how to even approach that but when it comes to food you know I had a conversation last week with a friend of mine who was working for the mutual aid chapter in Brooklyn he was working with Bedsty Strong and they were you know Hour by hour, they just were working really hard to make sure that individuals, families, and communities in Bed-Stuy were, were not only being delivered food, but were being connected in ways that they might not otherwise 
um, have the opportunity to engage. And so, you know, he was taking me through what they were actually doing in this one small community, what they were building, like their Slack channels, their delivery channels, who was working on it, where they were getting their food. And so that was concrete. That made sense to me. Um, is, are you seeing that in your neighborhood in, in San Francisco? Are, are, those, are those structures in place to get food to the people who need it? Um, I, I think um, there are certain structures in place to provide immediate relief. Um, but of course, the, the, the need is varied and diverse and the solutions need to be equally varied and diverse. Um, and what I mean by that is we have, you know, traditional <clears throat> helpers, like, you know, there's a, a, a little organization here in San Francisco called Food Runners. Uh, <clears throat> they've been in existence in, for over 30 years. It's run by this incredible leader named Mary. She's a, 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 a she self-proclaimed hippie, you know, who just, who saw this, that, you know, no food should go to waste and any excess food should be redirected as quickly as possible. And um, for many years, that service provided a really vital um, source of food security by taking excess food from um, corporate cafeterias and uh, overage from restaurants and, and, and collecting them and then delivering them to, to housing sites. Um, sites that served um, individuals living in community with a diagnosis of HIV, um, senior sites, public housing sites. Um, but, you know, when, when the order to shelter in place happened, it completely shifted the source of where their food came from because there was no more excess food coming from cafeterias. There was no more excess food coming from restaurants. Um, we're seeing now and, and we're reading more and more that like uh, uh, the farm to table movement has really um, shown some, some real um, significant sort of challenges in the Bay Area, the farm to table movement really relied on restaurants to purchase a lot of the really fresh produce and the, the really sort of bespoke heirloom produce uh, directly from, from farm relationships or through farmer's markets. Um, and that, that dynamic has fundamentally changed because the volume of business has, has declined in such a significant way. And so if you imagine, um, like, you know, anyone who, who speaks in the language of supply and demand curves, there's been a contraction in both, uh, there's been a, a, a noticeable contraction in demand, um, but the su supply curves haven't shifted as much because these farmers the planning that they put, um, that they make for a, a season of farming, you know, it's not like they can pivot in a moment. They've, they've got beds and, 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 and roots in the ground and, and, and a cycle of, a natural cycle of how, how plants um, deliver whatever they deliver, you know. And, um, and so we're seeing a real fundamental shift in, in food supply and how it's supply and the supply chain and, and where people are making decisions on a daily basis that, um, you know, as people are sheltering in place, what are the things in supermarkets that are, that are selling the most of their pantry items like dried beans and flour? Um, 
but you know, turnips and radishes and lettuces and milk and, um, and uh, those those things that are much more perishable are not moving as quickly. Um, so in this moment, how do we structurally ensure that we reduce um, the waste of, of that very precious, of those very precious food products and make sure that we feed the people who, who are being sheltered in place, who don't have the luxury of being able to sit and wait for an Amazon Prime delivery slot or who don't have the luxury of sitting by their Instacart and like bidding up or down based on how much you tip, um, whether or not you get a delivery that day. There are certain people who just don't have that economic um, uh, uh, flexibility, you know, um, that we, we can't auction off access to food, um, especially in this moment in time. But we see that happening, you know, whether you pay for it by how long you stand in line at the Whole Foods or you pay for it based on how long you sit in front of your computer waiting for 12.01 a.m. to hit for the new slot to open up or whether you go on open table and you, you, you book a reservation to shop at a local grocery store. Like there are, a number, there are a number of individuals in our community who don't have access to the Internet. There are a number of our individuals in our community who don't have tablets or smartphones or laptops. So they may not be able to take advantage of certain quote unquote technological innovations to improve their access to food. So it's incumbent upon mutual aid networks like, like your, like the Bedside Strong, um, and, and to really, for, for community members to really see beyond their immediate needs, you know, fear can really drive oneself and subsume oneself to, to, to believe that their needs are, are the most important in any given moment, you know? But this is a, a time now more than ever for us to take a moment and again, to, to really just take a deep breath and realize that um, if you have the luxury to be able to take a moment to take a deep breath, then you can acknowledge that maybe someone else out there um, would benefit by extending um, a little bit of compassion and to realize that like the material comfort that we have might be in excess. We may be able to extend a little bit more of ourselves in this current moment so that we can relieve a little bit of suffering that someone else that we don't know and someone else that we don't see, um, that we can find a way to contribute even in a small way that might help someone um, remember the dignity of, of being alive so that they can have the resilience to confront their fears about how they, their needs need to be met. And so these mutual aid networks really are an incredible, I, I mean, ultimately, it's the ultimate software. It's the ultimate computer software. Like our bodies are wired to be compassionate. Our bodies and our minds are wired to be altruistic. Um, but we have to program ourselves with a language that is like really deeply basic within us that um, if we extend care a little bit further beyond our normal circles, um, that we actually build our communities in a way to be responsive uh, to this current moment, to meet this moment with a little bit of tenderness um, so that the other side of this, we maybe can prevent a little of the suffering, a little bit of the grief that's about to come. I understand 
in just a very clear way what it means for somebody who's hungry and doesn't have access to Whole Foods or Instacart or Amazon Prime. The critical nature of having something set up to get them food. Like, like I, I, I totally get that. I'm a little bit more murky in my understanding of that shift to compassion and the need for compassion and building community in terms of what that actually means and, and in terms of the, the most basic of, uh, of an individual's need, um, what, it, what that looks like. I think it looks like um, a couple of things. I think it looks like um, calling your local food bank and volunteering for a shift. I think it looks like supporting um, endeavors like, like um, you know, the, 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 the local uh, food kitchens. It looks like um, going to the, the mutual aid boards and seeing if someone um, needs to purchase groceries but can't leave their house because they're a homebound senior with uh, uh, a, a, a compromised immunity right now. I think it looks like um, calling a, 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 an old coworker up that, that used to save your ass all the time um, that probably got laid off and saying, hey, um, can I go get you a bag of groceries right now? I think it looks like um, making an extra loaf of bread and knocking on your neighbor's door and saying, I have an extra loaf of bread. Um, would you like one? I think it looks like um, calling up your, your local politician and, and saying, hey, like, I understand that these unemployment, um, uh, dis uh, uh, unemployment insurance doesn't cover un uh, undocumented immigrants. Uh, what are you doing to make sure that they get relief in this time? I think it looks like um, calling your governor's office and saying, hey, what leadership are you showing to make sure that our essential frontline food workers have the proper protective equipment that we're also extending to healthcare workers because we're asking them to work. I think it looks like making sure that um, we really value public transportation and understand that it requires a significant infrastructure investment in the form of dollars so that we're not asking essential frontline workers to pack buses and subways um, because transit systems are being asked to, to make major cuts in service. Um, so that it's so that you know, so that we're not asking frontline essential workers to violate social distancing because there aren't enough subway cars or buses running for people to be six foot apart from each other. Um, you know, I think it looks like a lot of those things. Um, but but fun but fundamentally, what it looks like is saying, can I step away from my immediate needs right now? And and take a look at my community and see if someone that's less like me or someone I've never engaged with, if I can begin to wonder what they need to feel secure and safe at this time. Are there any resources for people, say they're listening to this podcast and they're 
feeling inspired by your call for compassion, your call for empathy, your call for action, is there a way for them to easily figure out what's the best way to apply that passion? The best way for them, the most effective way? Because I hear, you know, I hear some of your, the suggestions and just knowing from working with my clients, oftentimes you can't call up a food bank and offer to volunteer because a lot of the food banks uh, are full, like, like their volunteer registries are full for like years going forward. Like it's just, it's, it's an impossibility. And, you know, like say, hey, they want to call up a local politician and say, you know, can you do this? But I'm, I, I guess I have some concerns, you know, just the work that I've done in the last three and a half years in politics, the efficacy of a single voice that's not part of a larger organization making that phone call. And so is there, is there an optimal way to engage with this empathy to actually achieve a productive end? Um, I'm reminded of a, a, there's a Octavia Butler quote um, that I'm going to paraphrase, but you know, she says um, something to the effect of there's no magic bullet that's going to solve all this, um, but there are plenty of helpers, you know, and you can choose to be one of them. Um, and I, I, I know I'm sort of um, skirting your question a little bit. <laughs> well, well I, and I, I can read you her exact quote because it's up in front of me. There's no single answer that will solve all of our future problems. There's no magic bullet. Instead, there are thousands of answers, at least. You can be one of them if you choose to be. And that's from her essay, A Few Rules for Predicting the Future. Yeah, and I think immediately, you know, I'll say for any... For any of your listeners that are here in the Bay Area, you know, one thing that I've, I, I've dived into is just I've joined a coalition of about 25 volunteers here to, to, to participate in this program called SF New Deal. Um, and we need all the support we can get financially. Um, we're trying to address food security by converting um, small food business restaurants into community kitchens. Um, and so that's one immediate thing. Another immediate um uh, 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 outlet for help is like if you can extend your uh, financial contribution, like find an undocumented worker relief fund and give them that money and just like let people, there, there's something about the dignity of choice that comes with, with just um, giving someone that financial resource. And these uh, immigrant relief funds are doing just that, you know, um, it, it alleviates some of their need to, to sort of wander and travel to look for work if they have a little bit of money to sort of provide for their their essential needs. Um, that, that's an immediate, immediate way that people can be of service. It's just like extending resources to people who really need it right now. Um, and, 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 and they, and really plugging into the needs of neighbors, especially seniors, um, and, and communities that are really doing the, the, the work of supporting 
essential workers right now and frontline workers. Um, uh, and uh, a, a layer that we haven't talked about is just sort of the, the stewardship of, of their mental well-being as well, you know? So, like, we have to really think about this is a marathon. It's, it's not a sprint, you know? Um, no, it is certainly not. So we, we, have to, we have to build a new infrastructure of, of care, how we collectively care for people, how we, how we support and advance their dignity. And I don't know what that looks like for, for each individual that might be listening, but I certainly know what it feels like. And it feels like, for me, a full embodiment uh, within, you know, within each body, you know, a feel, uh, uh, an awareness that, like, um, when I take a deep breath, I just feel differently. And can you imagine... Um, when someone else has access to feel like that, you know, take a deep breath and, and feel that calm that just comes, even if it's temporary. And imagine, imagine like, use a little bit of, of creativity to imagine um, a local organization or a local leader or a local activist that you can call up and just say, I'm not sure why I, I, I was compelled to call, but I just want to, I want to help. How can I help? Um, and just, you know, these conversations um, can really open doors to solutions that we once didn't imagine were possible. You know, the number of conversations happening around the country and around the world, the Financial Times wrote an editorial that um, um, uh, in favor of and in support of basic income, of all the newspapers in the world that would write an editorial of supporting basic income, the Financial Times made a case for it just days ago. You know, the, the realization that everyone in this country has that, you know, with the last jobless report, um, 16.5 million Americans have filed for unemployment in the last three weeks. I'm one of them. Oh, I'm, I'm one of them too. And, you know, the 16.5 million Americans, I can assure you that not a majority of them can't afford their COBRA payments right now. So um, we have millions of Americans that are at risk of losing their health coverage in the middle of a health, a public health crisis and how that's going to exacerbate um, the racial inequities that already exist in how we deliver healthcare in this country, which means that communities of color will, will, will bear the, the disproportionate impact of how certain social systems respond to the, uh, COVID-19 and, 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 and the, the real, the real impact, like the health impacts, like which communities are already at risk for diabetes, which communities are already at risk for hypertension, which communities are already at risk of asthma um, and other pulmonary diseases. Um, this is all um, quite um, overwhelming, but, but, and, and can create a sense of scarcity and lack but what I, what I hope to um, um, ensure you and all of the friends that, you know, we've been so fortunate to love and all of the listeners that you've been so fortunate to cultivate over the last um, uh, 46 days is that the one renewable resource is our ability to love each other. Uh, another renewable resource is our ability to extend compassion to people who are not familiar to us. These are resources that are um, that are that can come in abundance if we choose to approach them from the mindset that they are within our reach, you know. 
it's like that um, Jillian Welch song, you know, Everything is Free. Um, I do know it. I'm a big Gillian Welch fan. She is, uh, her, her voice is, I hope, what I hear when I walk through the gates of heaven. You know, uh, that and Avata and Ginger, God bless John Prime, you know, like, <laughs> but truly, but truly the things that are freely available to us, our, our breath, our ability to love one another, our ability to extend compassion to each other, those are the things that um, we have access to in this immediate moment. And, and I hope that by touching into those resources, we can imagine how to move forward and how to provide immediate relief for other individuals who may be, um, uh, uh, who may be distressed in this time of great uncertainty. Would you say that the majority of your time in energy and efforts outward facing has been through SF New Deal? Has that been perhaps the most organized of your initiatives so far? It, it has certainly occupied um, most of my waking hours. <laughs> I think I was, I think I was um, on the phone or on my emails for about 12 hours yesterday. Um, wow. Um, I think this week alone, we will have served uh, 22,000 meals um, at about um, 80 different sites in San Francisco. Last week, I think we did over 18,000 meals at about 75 sites um, and um, uh, 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 involving at least 55 different local small food businesses and restaurants. And, um, you know, it's, it's going to take all of us. And this is, this is an effort just here in San Francisco. And, and there are other parallel efforts that are happening. And every week that we're doing this, we're coordinating with each other in ways because we realize that time is a precious resource, money is a precious resource, um, and also just the well-being of our community members is ultimately the most precious resource. Um, you know, I'm, I, it's, it's, not, it's not lost on me that San Francisco um, has, has, has the, the, the compassionate memory of living through the HIV-AIDS crisis. Uh, and it's not lost on me that the director of public health here in San Francisco, Dr. Grant Colfax, has been such an instrumental leader in, in addressing the needs of the community members who have been uh, diagnosed with HIV and AIDS. And, and having him in leadership right now is giving a lot of people in San Francisco a lot of um, assurance um, because um, San Francisco over the past 10 years has, has really come together to reduce the uh, infection rate of HIV to almost zero. Um, and it is through collective care and, and, and a dignified response, not a response of shame, but a response of care, a response of acknowledging um, that individuals will always be whole and complete regardless of whatever diagnosis they have. And so this is a real moment to also acknowledge that individuals in our community with permanent disabilities have always lived with this anxiety, you know? And I think, I, I forget which, which friend you spoke to um, in one of your podcasts about anxiety and how, this, how, how they were so, so prepared for this moment, you know? Um, because um, individuals with permanent disabilities have always figured out how to navigate daily life, their daily lives, 
um, understanding that any one decision could really compromise their immunity, you know, and, and, and now most of us that have, don't have permanent disabilities are living it in, in what we hope to be a temporary um, time frame, you know, until hopefully a vaccine is developed. Like, like the number of people who are, 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 are walking around demanding that other people wear masks um, because they don't want to get um, transmission from some sort of um, droplet from someone else's um, breathing or coughing or sneezing. Um, these are, these are, these are, these are um, real conditions that uh, disability community members have always lived with and have always been uh, organizing for. We can learn from them. We can censor those voices. We can censor the undocumented workers. We can censor the disability community and ask them in this moment, as our policymakers are making real time decisions, we can lay the foundation for a different way of being in coexistence moving forward so that we can not only triage this current moment, but we can build resilience and lay a foundation for a recovery that truly supports the dignity of every single human being or they're being human, you know? That's a, that's a beautiful note right there. I, I like that sense of optimism and hope for the future in terms of something that we can, we can build toward. We, we can get it right. We can get it right with every decision we make in the coming months. So long as we make sure that we're taking care of the people closest to harm. If we solve it for them, TK, we solve it for everyone. But if we only solve it for the people who have always had access to the resources and we continue to leave out the people who live in shadows and live in the margins, we're, we're going to see this exacerbated and we're going to see the cycles accelerated. Like we should be talking about global climate change right now. Like the, 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 this, this has been a cycle that, uh, of, of pandemic preparedness that we've seen from H1N1, from SARS, from swine flu, and we have to learn our lessons. We have to learn our lessons and now more than ever. Um, and we can really make it, we can make a collective commitment to care for each other now because we know that it's going to allow us to address even larger issues moving forward. You've given me the title for our conversation, Solving Problems from the Margins In. I'm, I'm really grateful, my friend, to be back in touch with you. Um, I know it's been many, many years, and uh, I, I do appreciate um, um, your willingness to extend your platform to so many different voices, um, because truly, we, we all carry solutions um, because we all know how to love um, and I really think that, that that truly will be the path forward. And it's just been such a pleasure to reconnect with various people that across my 37 years that maybe we only interacted for a couple of weeks or months or even, you know, the span of uh, a time in college. But it just like like the work that you are doing and have done is something that I carry with me as pride as somebody that you know called you a friend back in our university days and 
you know, it might be one of those things where I'm going to, after this podcast is done, and it's funny to say this while I'm still recording, but I'm going to put you in touch with my buddy who is doing the work here, mutual aid, and maybe some of the lessons that he's learned um, in terms of their delivery and their community building, uh, SF New Deal would be able to absorb um, or adapt and vice versa. Um, and you know, the single best connection I've made from doing this so far was interviewing my friend Jackson with Mutual Aid, sending it to one of my clients, you'll appreciate this, uh, organization called Teens for Food Justice. They go into classrooms, say here in the Bronx, um, or down in some of the poor school districts in the Miami area, and in unused classrooms, they build greenhouses. And in those greenhouses, they grow food for the students not only to eat but to sell because a lot of the communities in which these students live are technically food deserts. And so this organization, Teens for Food Justice, is hopefully because of the putting them in touch, will take some of the food that they're um, growing in and storing in Long Island City and get it to the communities um, in, in Bedside. Um, here in New York, and so I, I just think about connecting people up like that, and you know, if if these podcasts, in sum, can feed one person or one family, then then it's done some real good in the world, other than just being therapy for myself. <laughs> uh, I um, it, we're, we're more interdependent than ever before, and. Um, I think it, it really brings into focus how easy it is for us to dispense of our normal patterns of othering each other um, and creating new patterns of loving one another. It, it, it's, really, it's really the kindest choice we can make right now is to choose to love as many people as possible in this one precious life that we all have. Well, Vinny, I'm going to be sending a lot of love to you and yours going forward. I really look forward to getting this podcast out, sharing it with people. Um, and if, if you need anything, anybody, uh, anything at all, uh, it, it's so nice to now be reconnected. And I look forward to um, using this as an excuse to see you in person, in the flesh, uh, when our immediate fears of COVID-19 have abated somewhat and it will be okay to gather in a safe place and form these communities uh, in person once again. It's been an absolute delight and um, uh, may you and your loved ones continue to be healthy and may you and your loved ones um, continue to have shelter um, and I'm really looking forward to connecting in the flesh really soon my friend. Take care be well. Okay, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.